This is how we do it on Continuing Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Michael Dismuke. I am a lead writer for Captain's Log. I'm a freelance writer for Star Trek Adventures RPG, in addition to being a blogger on Continuing Missions, which is the number one fan site for both those aforementioned products. Uh, I'm rushing today to go straight to introductions because we have so much to talk about. It's such an amazing crew here tonight. And so let's go straight to Jim Johnson. Hey everybody, I'm Jim Johnson. I'm the project manager and line editor for the Star Trek Adventures RPG and the Captain's Log Solo RPG, both published by Modiphius Entertainment. Low these many seven years now, going on year eight. We're super excited. And uh, I am thrilled to have uh, two awesome guests on the show with us tonight. Um, so Michael, um, why don't we start with uh, Maurice? So uh, uh, Maurice, you're new to the show. Uh, we have a tradition here uh, when, when our guests introduce themselves. We also ask you to please uh, talk just a little bit about your favorite Star Trek series and uh, also your favorite Star Trek character and not necessarily Captain, but your favorite Star Trek character as well. Uh, so why don't you uh, kick it off there, sir? Okay, so my name is Maurice Broadus. I'm science fiction and fantasy author. Um, I'm also a middle school teacher and librarian, and then I'm also a community organizer here in Indianapolis. Um, I, I head up a group called uh, Cafe Creative, um, which is a, a collective of uh, of some of the just dopest artists here in, in the city. Um, let's see, yeah, probably yeah, I've written about 18 books, I believe, and just had over over 100 short stories published. Um, so, you know, doing a thing, trying to do a thing. <laughs> um, now you favorite. do. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, favorite favorite Star Trek series to, like, anyone who's even... I will go down, I'll fight on any hill about this, but it's Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine, for me, I mean, it came at the right time. Uh, you know, it just had the... And had... Uh, had my favorite character on it so my favorite character well i mean cisco always has a special place in my heart but my actual favorite character is Worf. and but when they transferred Worf over to deep space nine i mean deep space nine was already hitting it as my favorite star trek right it was already hitting it but then it's like oh oh you know what we need to up it a notch we're gonna bring over Worf, and i'm like so Worf comes over and cisco shaves his head and I'm like, oh, it is on now. It is on. And so, uh, so yeah, so for me, Deep Space Nine, Worf, Cisco, that combo. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Awesome. Fantastic. And uh, uh, Derek, uh, for the folks who've uh, been on our show for a while, they know you. Uh, but why don't you give, your, give, us a, uh, give us an intro again anyway, just for the, uh, for the sake of doing so. Oh, thanks, Jim. Um, well, I'm Derek Tyler Attico. Uh, I'm a two-time winner of the Star Trek Strange New Worlds anthology where, where we met. Mm -hmm. um, I um, have been a freelance writer for Star Trek Adventures, and I'm also the author of the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko, Woo! which is right here, which, is right here. <laughs> <laughs> which comes out uh, next day, November 21st. Um, favorite series? I don't think it's any surprise at this point that it is Deep Space Nine. And I would be saying that even if I wasn't writing um, the autobiography, it's definitely Deep Space Nine. Uh, it's because I think Deep Space Nine is um, one of the most uh, reality-based versions of Star Trek. Um, favorite character is is definitely Cisco. But then, like Maurice, putting that aside, putting Cisco aside, 
I would say probably probably Garrick, um, just because he's oh. just such a, a multi-dimensional character, yes. right? Right, right, for right. sure, right, because, sure. <laughs> right, right, oh, because he, he, you he know, was the star of one so of my favorite two-parters in there, right? Oh, I'm, right, <laughs> right. No, it's fine, it's fine, but it, it's Garrick, yeah. um, just because he's so duplicitous, multi-layered, and 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 his his arc over seven years is is an incredible arc as well. So I think it's a phenomenal, a phenomenal character. So it would be, you know, second would be definitely the character. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Thank you, Derek. That's awesome. So my Michael, I hope you're okay. I know you're a huge Voyager fan, obviously, but you're you're (laughs) fine. you're surrounded by DS9 stands tonight, so it's okay. You know, we'll we we do plenty of Voyager themed episodes. We've done some seven episodes. Now, now we'll do we'll do a DS9 Cisco Garrick and um um you know other characters tonight. So I, I think it's okay. No, no, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll live. I'll live. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to say what inspired this. Um, many of you who saw me come back from Gen Con know that I had a wonderful experience there back in August 2023. Um one of the biggest takeaways that I can't stop talking about, which really brought this group together here, is a panel that Maurice and Derek did on Afrofuturism in books. And Jim, we've talked about this quite a bit in the years, yes, years that we've been doing uh, continuing conversations. I know um, it links with a piece of art that you selected, Jim, for your Keyhole to Eternity series that came out in the Tricorder pack. Uh, yeah. um, and and I've talked about this where we have a de- definitively per person of African heritage, um, even with the lip plate there. And I, that's one of my favorite pieces of art in the book. And then all of a sudden, you know, I go to Gen Con and we hear Maurice direct, uh, Derek, several other authors up there talking about what Afrofuturism is. And I'm going to be humble real quick. And I'm going to go and have the exact conversation I had with Derek that Saturday morning there at the con. I, he says, yeah, I'm doing a panel on Afrofuturism. And I went, what's that? Yeah. And he says, oh, well, you just got to come see. And boy, <laughs> mind blowing. So now with that, I hand the baton over to Derek and Maurice to kind of frame this conversation okay. for us. And I want to know, what is Afrofuturism and why is it so important for writing nowadays? Um, well, uh, yeah. I, had the, I had that exact same moment uh, uh, a few years ago because I had a short story collection come out. Um, and this is probably like 2016, something like that. And uh, and the way my story, my, my collection was arranged, I had stories of the past, stories in the present, stories set in the future. And then all of a sudden, the, the review started coming out, and they're like, "Oh man, you know, it's a great collection." Uh, yeah, I'll just throw that in there. Oh, it's a great collection. Uh, but anyway, um, but the, a lot of the reviews start tracking with. Uh, but it's when Maurice uh, starts talking about the story, the the stories in the future. That's when his light as an Afrofuturist and as an Afrofuturist really starts to shine. And I'm like, an Afro what now? Because um, I'd never heard the term before. And so, uh, so then I start doing a, a bit of a, a deep dive um, because uh, uh, the, the term uh, came into parlance in like 1993. It was a, a sociologist named Mark Derry. He coins the term. And uh, the reason he coins the term is because he's just like, um, there's like five black people writing in speculative fiction, right? And, and he name checks like Sam Delaney, Octavia Butler, um, Steve Barnes, um, Oh shoot, uh, Amaro, uh, Charles Saunders. So, so he he name checks name checks these authors, and um, but he's just like there, there's just not that many uh, black people writing in the, this field that we're going to call Afrofuturism, and um, 
and Afrofuturism is now, you know, popped into the uh, pop culture parlance because of uh, uh, Black Panther came out. Uh, we can, uh, and so all of a sudden everybody's like, "Oh, Black uh, Afrofuturism this and Afrofuturism that." And uh, so for me, the the, uh, the definition I use for Afrofuturism it's uh, art through the Black cultural lens. Um, it's uh, it, it critiques the present, but that critique is, is rooted in history. It's rooted in the past. But most importantly, it points to the future. It's always about imagining ourselves into the future. And uh, and, and I always think of uh, what uh, the author Tanana Reeve Du said, that uh, the, the act of imagining ourselves into the future is the first act of resistance. So that, that's why I come at uh, Afrofuturism. Beautiful. Derek, what's your take on it? Well, first of all, I'm not going to talk about that. It's just, I'm just not. Um, every, everything that Marie said is is well, obviously accurate, but um, just true and true to the heart. Um, I would say that I first found out about Afrofuturism. I think um, probably around the same time I discovered Octavia Butler. I didn't really discover Octavia mm. Butler till around the mid two thousands, like two thousand fourteen or fifteen. I'm, I'm I hate to say, mm. and. Uh, when I did, I was just blown away. Um, no, I knew about Afrofuturism before that, but I had not known about Butler. And a professor, it was like, how do you not know about Butler? And we sat down and she gave me the, um, her, her, her Xenogenesis books and I absorbed them in like a weekend because it was like, it was just nuts. And um, I had always had this idea of what Afrofuturism was, but then reading Butler, it just married that whole idea and it just really took the idea and almost gave um, gave life to it. And I could see it bearing fruit um, because th there's no one or there's very few that I think are better than, than what Butler does. Mm -hmm. And that idea of um, a people, a people of color um, moving forward in the future, um, existing um, and flourishing um, in the future mm -hmm. is I think one of the, staples and one of the the pillars and foundations of afrofuturism so with with that in mind i i i um i think that germinated in my head for a, a while and i will say that was um something that was definitely um prevalent as i wrote the the autobiography it had to be it had to be as i wrote the autobiography afrofuturism had to um definitely um be everywhere in the autobiography yeah. And still be Star Trek because Star Trek is in a lot of ways has themes of throughout it of Afrofuturism, you know? Yeah. You both are, Jim, they have me back ordering books again while I'm watching the podcast. <laughs> it's becoming a habit whenever I have guests on now where I start buying books on Amazon. I want to, I want to. No problem to have, Michael. Yeah. My my takeaway, <laughs> just so you know, you gentlemen know from what, what my biggest takeaway was from the panel was Afrofuturism to me. And now I'm really being thoughtful of this when I write um, is being able to write human cultures without a dependence on Western culture. So many times, you know, we see nowadays that success is dependent upon approval from the, from whoever's in power. Whereas this is no, this is a future where that mm -hmm. does not even apply anymore. It's not even necessary. I think about, you know, just as a quick uh, anecdote, when I went to China and, and traveled through China, it was the first time I was like, wow, they're not American exceptionalism at all. They don't think that there's a dependence on it. They've been around for 4,000 plus years. And it struck me and my friends who are from China were like, 
wow, it really elevated the experience for me. Like, wow, I need to get out there and explore more cultures um, and understand that any human group can succeed. And so that's what I got from your panel. And then Jim, I'm going to let you take it from here, because honestly, I think to frame for the people who listen to our show regularly, you know, where we talk about Star Trek adventures, I do want you to kind of express some purposefulness you put on us as writers and how to approach it. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about that to really launch us. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I, I do have some questions, but I'll save the questions for a little bit later. But yeah, uh, Michael, I'll, I'll just start on that with the kind of jumping in. So like, um, I was, uh, I started working on Star Trek Adventures as a writer, right? And then I rapidly got involved in being an editor and a copy editor and a proofreader and project manager and all that stuff. Uh, but once they gave me the reins in 2019 to actually like just manage the line, like, okay, we're giving you the line, go go do whatever. Um, I was really intentional about wanting to bring in more diverse voices into the line as, as writers and also um, artists. Like I, I really encourage our um, art director to go find more artists who are willing to do diverse stuff. Right. And I really challenged him to think about um, like, like, you know, when we're writing art briefs for all the books and we're writing out art briefs, like get more, get more diverse. Like we, we want to see different body shapes. We want to see different, um, um, you know, skin tones, not just for humans, but also Vulcans, you know, Bajorans, you know, they're, they're not all monocultures, right? They're not, they're not all monochrome, like every species should have some diversity to it. Uh, so I was really intentional about that. And so I do challenge my writers, I, you know, I really challenge them to say, look, okay, think differently, think, think outside of the traditional, uh, you know, um, um, scope that we've had. Um, and, and I think I've said, we've seen some some results to that. And I know, Michael, you, you talk about that tricorder uh, piece of art a lot, which I'm grateful for, because uh, I was I was really nervous about that, because obviously I am a white male and I am really nervous about doing stuff like this because I don't want people to think I'm appropriating other cultures and like just dropping them into Star Trek because it looks cool, because like that's not the intention. The intention is to show that the human diversity and the human spirit will continue on into the 23rd, 24th, 25th centuries, just like we see on screen. And, you know, absolutely, there could be a Maori captain. Why not? Right. Maoris are a huge, important culture um, here on Earth and in New Zealand. And uh, it makes sense to me that they would join Starfleet and uh, want to do it. I have not had anybody from New Zealand push back on me and say, no, I don't think we would do that. Um, you know, the, the lip plate, um, I thought I will admit, you know, by all means, I was absolutely influenced by black Panther, uh, when I saw that, cause that was such an amazing movie. And I was like, wow, look at this culture on display, all these different, all these different cultures right here on the screen. It was amazing. And uh, I did my research and I was like, you know what? I think there are certain cultures on, on earth who are still honoring that tradition. Why wouldn't they carry that on into the 23rd, 24th, 25th centuries and beyond? So, you know. Uh, again, I'm really trying to be intentional about that. So, uh, Michael, I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but <laughs> no, that was dead on. I, I, I wanted to frame that because uh, Jim always has this kind of open invitation to new writers and new artists. And he's not joking is what I want to say is that people can really feel that that door is being open. And um, of course, just like Maurice and Derek and their writing are opening up doors. And yeah. for me, just like changing how I write. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the questions you actually, uh, Derek, I think you kind of touched on it already where you were talking about Afrofuturism and how Trek kind of from the beginning had had glimmers of that, because I was going to ask you both, like um, when you when you think about Star Trek and you think about Afrofuturism, like, do you think do you feel like Uhura fits into that? even though back in the 60s, nobody knew what Afrofuturism was as a as a concept, right? I mean, we were certainly writing toward it. And we had we had writers who were writing um 
fiction uh, along those lines. But like, do, do you feel like Uhura fits in that mold? You know, even and then you're know, moving forward into the other series. You know, you've got Jordy, you've got Worf, you've got uh, um, uh, Cisco, obviously Cisco and uh, and Jake and so forth. But just uh, any thoughts on uh, on that? No, I agree. I think uh, it it definitely is. Um, Afrofuturism, as as defined, would be um, that it's um, uh, an idea and a principle and people and characters um, in the future moving moving that that idea of of the culture forward. And Uhura does that, you know. Um, I mean, I know there are some people that would probably say, well, you know, it has to be created by people of color, you know, um, to be like Afrofuture. But I, I don't necessarily agree with that fully because I think that Afrofuturism starts in your heart, you know, and if you want to move something forward and if you see, because I think part of Afrofuturism grows, not all of it, but part of it grows out of what we see as an injustice, right? We see an injustice and we say, well, there's a deficiency. And so since there is a deficiency, there needs to be, that needs to be equaled and leveled in the future. And it needs to flourish in the future because it's 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 not in, in so many uh, aspects here in the present. And so I think, and I'm not, I'm not obviously going to speak for the man, but I think, I think Roddenberry looking ahead, he's like, what do I want my future, my world, my world building that he was creating? What, is, what did he want that to be? And he wanted a future where things were, were level, where, where all colors, all creeds were, had this e equality. I mean, and he said as much himself, you know? And so that is, if not Afrofuturism, it is definitely on that path towards Afrofuturism. Um, so I definitely think he was definitely um, onto something um, with the uh, character of her and then of um, of Jordy. I know when I was working uh, with you on Shackleton and we were creating um, species and I thought about the Vinshari species. I mean, they're not a, they're not human, but I was thinking about creating a diverse species because another thing that that Star Trek always does is that it shows through allegory, you know? And so I was thinking about the Vinshari and I was thinking about ways to show them as a diverse species and, and ways to show them, uh, because the more we show diversity in aliens, what we, we are obviously, what we're doing is we're holding a mirror up to them and we're showing ourselves, right? So I was thinking all of that is what was going on when I was thinking about the Vinshari and I was creating them was not only just to create a cool species that I think would would move, would be um, great for character and story and plot, but something that could also be diverse and and have diversity within their own uh, within their own culture and to show the diversity within their own culture and then have that reflect as people hopefully play it out, you know? So it's not necessarily Afrofuturism in regards to the Vinshari, but it is showing diversity, which I think Star Trek has always done, has always pushed forward for diversity. And that's a little long-winded, but... No, that's great. That's, that's great insight, uh, Derek. Thank yeah. you for that. Um, uh, Maurice, uh, anything you'd like to add to the to, to that? Yeah. Uh, um, cause yeah, cause I, I'm, I'm familiar with some of those arguments where it's like oh, Afrofuturism to be, you know, perfectly categorized as Afrofuturism has to be, uh, black created, you know, that sort of thing. I've heard that argument and, uh, and I agree with it to a point, uh, 
except for when we come to like media, because uh, television and film are collaborative processes. So I mean, so by definite, by default, you know, you, you, you know, we, we have to uh, we have to broaden the definition. You, you know, mm-hmm. yes. But yes. but that that being said, I mean, and and, and even with like Black Panther, for example, uh, Black Panther was created by you know Stan Lee. So you know, Jack right. so it's like uh but yet that's our standard bearer for for Afrofuturism. Um mm-hmm. and I'm going to not go down the nerd rabbit hole about you know by when they got Christopher Priest to write Black Panther and then all of a sudden you do have a black creative voice and suddenly Black Panther gets redefined as a character and, and reexamined and reimagined. But that's me not doing that. I will say um though that along those lines though it being a collaborative process you know, a hero doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. No, Nichelle has to bring her creative self to that role. Uh, you know, Nichelle is imagining, and in fact, I, you know, the, the story of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King encouraging her to stay on the show because we're all uh, imagining ourselves into the future through her, right? So that's very much an, an Afrofuturist move. Um, and, uh, you know, then we move into uh, 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 Next Generation and, and Jordy. And for me, it was... It wasn't just Jordy. Jordy was one piece, but for me, it was actually Worf. Because um, you know, speaking about Star Trek, you know, speaking an allegory for me, Worf, in many ways, not many. I I, re- I even wrote a, a paper about this at one point, and I talked about Worf's journey of blackness. Okay. Um, because I'm very, you know, if you you examine Worf's journey, you know, who who is he? He's a, his character. He is, uh, you know. Uh, he, he's he's in one culture, but he gets adopted by another. He basically assimilates into Starfleet, and then he encounters his people in, in a in a raw moment. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh wait, now I got to rethink my identity in light of this encounter with my people. And then he begins this journey over the arc through the rest of the series into Deep Space Nine, as he deepens this journey of him exploring his culture and what does it mean to be Klingon in in this greater society what does it mean for him to move by his own path what does it mean for him to be true to his culture uh not being assimilated by this greater culture but you know establishing what that looks like with, with within his context and uh and i just uh, i was just like every time i'd watch that war, uh, warf episode i'd be like ooh, this just speaks to me so hard because uh this is my this is my every day um and that and so so we have that piece and then we get to uh cisco who, for me, I mean, again, you have a powerful actor, Avery Brooks, who's bringing his full self to co-create this character, um, and it's and you know, and again, when I talk about Afrofuturism having that element of of looking to the past, I mean, when when uh, Cisco picks up that baseball, that Negro League baseball, you know, that that's him going, you know what, I I don't exist in a vacuum either. There is a past, and there's a past that that forms who I am, um, even though I exist in the future, uh, you know. It's all rooted in the past for him, and there's a, a even his role as a, as an ancestor, literally, <laughs> you, you know, all comes to bear in terms of uh, the, this uh, of how Afrofuturism is reflected through Deep Space Nine. Yeah, and I I would also add really quick that you know, uh, Mr. Brooks, uh, Avery Brooks, he pushed a lot of Afrofuturism mm-hmm. uh, in Star Trek, just um, from uh, the African. Uh, uh, attire that he would be in on his downtime, that the character would be in on his downtime, um, the African art on the walls. That was all Avery Brooks, mm-hmm. you know? And 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 so it's that marriage, it's that perfect marriage between the writers, you know, which were not Black, creating a really thoughtful, insightful character with deep roots 
in Louisiana, in New Orleans, you know, a quintessential uh, place of Black history and culture, and then marrying that with Avery Brooks, you know, mm-hmm. who and those and those two connections, and then pushing that forward, which gave us such a powerful, powerful performances on the screen and a powerful character that we're still talking about all these years later. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the other things about Cisco that I really appreciated as I was watching DS9 and getting into it is is the amazing job that he and Sirach Lofton and the you know the directors and the writers did with that relationship between mm. Ben and Jake. Like that, like that kind of a relationship between a father and son. You I mean, whether they're you know black or white or yellow or whatever color, like you just didn't see that that often on television. Mm-hmm. Um right. they had some like really deep emotional um you know connections and scenes and like you could see that they were putting the work in behind the scenes to like really get that relationship together and i think i think even uh Ciroc mentioned at one point that he was like uh avery books's uh, other son you know because they would go to ball games and stuff together and they were always uh or not always but they were often inseparable and uh and a- i mean avery brooks really took took him under his wing t- to some extent i think mm. uh, but it, but it translated so well to the screen because you just really saw that relationship and and how much it meant and i think um you know the the visitor uh that that you know obviously the great ds9 episode that that hit me hard the first couple times i watched it and then when i had my son uh, i watched it again and it hit me in a whole different way because like i was like oh wait a minute now i'm a dad and now i've got a son it's always so it was so amazing but their performances were just so so good and um you just add that extra layer of the fact that they're both you know the both men of color and um, you know, historically, there haven't been a lot of television shows that represent a positive relationship like that, right? It's always been kind of stereotypically negative, and that's that's been hard to 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 get past, right? And um, I, I wish <laughs> I wish we could get more people to watch DS Nine just because not just because it's Star Trek, but because of these these relationships and and the cultural significance of of what we were seeing on screen. I- and I want to add to it too, because I, I I know I'm an anomaly. I say the way I grew up because I grew up in a mixed family. My father's African America, lived in, uh, grew up in segregation. I am amazed by him because I can tell you with all honesty in all my years of existence, he's never had a chip on his shoulder. He's never <clears throat> blamed someone for this obstacle or that. And so I grew up in a household very similar to the Cosby show. And it was funny because people would come over and be like, man, you like live in the Huxtable household, um, <laughs> which at the same time was corresponding with Deep Space Nine. So my anomaly is that I didn't find it weird. My dad, a very successful businessman. Uh, my family, literally, if you go to our weddings or anniversaries, it looks like a UN gathering. There's a little bit of everything there. Um, and as I grew up, I didn't think about it when I was writing or creating. My friends were mixed who were playing RPG with me or telling stories with me. So I kind of had this assumption being in the Bay Area with all this diversity that, oh, that's normal until I started meeting friends from the East Coast and the South. (laughs) And then and then and then hearing conversations like this where it's like, oh, not only me and going back to your point, Maurice, about the collaborative process, I think it's for us to be deliberative about making sure other stories are told. And I wish I would have known earlier so I could have been more deliberative for the for the benefit of that. Throw that to talk about. <laughs> so, Michael, I, I have to ask you a favor. Can you move to your left just for a moment? I want to see what's behind you in that picture. That is an <laughs> that is an amazing backdrop. 
I don't think I've seen that anywhere. I'm curious to know where you got that from, because I really appreciate how much diversity is present in those 15 pictures. Um, yeah. And I, I want to point out something about that. I'll, I'll go ahead and send you the link to it. It's from a Tumblr I just came across. But even though we're focusing on Afrofuturism, um, again, I have family of every mix and ethnicity and creed and stuff like that on this picture for those of you who can't see it on the podcast not only are the popular african-american um black uh actors pictured the star trek characters here but even ones you know from asian descent hispanic descent uh those who represented native americans or indigenous first nation people uh people from east india so uh you know it's all in here and i thought what was cool about it is that anybody who's listening or watching this podcast it's not just about afrofuturism it's about what cultures are not having their story told mm -hmm. and how can you elevate the humanity by deliberately again, telling those stories. So yeah, I thought this poster was super cool too. Um, Jim and I'll get it to you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, so uh, I, I do have another question uh, that uh, this is a little self-serving, but I want to, I, I want to know anyway, um, I will admit I am not super well read on Afrofuturism. I am, I'm working on that. Uh, in, in the time that I that I have available to me. <laughs> but what I'm curious about is, um, and, and hopefully you can enlighten me, is is Afrofuturism like meant to be all encompassing, all encompassing world, you know, forgive me for lack of a better term, blackness um, in, in, in the future? Or um, is there is there is there variations within the I mean, let's call it a genre right it may not be a genre it may be something bigger than that but is there like african afrofuturism and like french african futurism and uh american you know afro-american futurism like are there are there different elements within the bigger umbrella of afrofuturism yeah uh, yeah actually the, the short answer yes. is yes Short answer is yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Super cool. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and if, if it was uh, Dr. Pamela uh, Sturm, I can't remember her, her last name, but she she coined the term African futurism mm -hmm. um, to describe, you know, uh, futurism specifically from the continent. Um, okay. I, I have uh, many Caribbean friends who write specifically Caribbean futurism mm -hmm. um, because uh, because it, it looks different. It comes from a different mindset mm -hmm. um, and different perspective. You know, typically when I think of Afrofuturism, I am thinking uh, black West, uh, black American uh, futurism, frankly, and, and, and each of those. Uh, if, if nothing else, it should point to the fact of uh, a black is not a monolith, mm -hmm. you know, exactly. when all said done, blackness is not a monolith. And so there are different expressions of that from where, you know, no matter, you know, from different aspects of the diaspora, from where, from where we find ourselves, you know, those stories will look different. And so that's why I've always kind of appreciated about it. Mm -hmm. There that's was awesome. some something else said by um, I'm forgetting her name right now. She was on the panel with you. Um, on Af Afrofuturism, um, and forgive me for getting for not calling her name right now, <clears throat> but she said something amazing. Science fiction, you know, for decades, it may have the absence of people of color. Maybe you watch the old mystery science theater. <laughs> it's hard to find a person uh, who's in a dignified way patrol, you know, portrayed uh, if they're a person of color. If you look at these old movies <clears throat> and she said, Afrofuturism is not a future absent of, say, white people. Right. <laughs> because true Afrofuturists and a better future never emulated the abuse mm -hmm. they may have received in past centuries. 
And that was like, it's like, whoa, imagine a future. And this is what I invite the audience to do. Imagine a future where you walk onto a planet with say, you know, just people of color and there is no racism because it's not a tool they ever needed or used. And that's an Afrofuturist idea too. And that blew my mind. That sent me reeling. Yeah, it sounds well, like a Dr. That, Sheree Renee Thomas right, right there. I think that's who said it. Yeah, that's it. That's who said it. That was one of the, I think, most profound things for me in 93 when I first watched Deep Space Nine. And you'll see it in Deep Space Nine. You, you, you see it throughout all of Trek. But I think for me, at least, it was more pronounced um, and more obvious in Deep Space Nine is that at no point, is anyone talking about the fact that Cisco man of color? Because why would you in the 23rd, 24th, 25th century? It's a non-issue. And that is phenomenal. And whereas it may be an issue for us today, what Gene Ronberry is saying, we got past all of that ridiculousness. We got we just we just we moved as a species, we moved past it. And uh, that's one of the beautiful things about, and perhaps I think the most beautiful thing about Star Trek is that we've moved past certain things. And because we've moved past certain uh, things, uh, moved past a certain level of ignorance, I think our our level of progression, at least in my opinion, accelerated because we're working together. And when you're not bickering and when you're not having wars and when you're not being petty and ignorant and you're working together, things progress a heck of a lot faster. And, and at least that's how I see it. And um, I think that's what Ron Mary is saying, um, because if you look at how fast humanity progresses, even other alien species are like, what's happening with humanity? Because we've got our act together. So mm, well said, uh, can't wait. <laughs> it's, it's a matter of time. I think, uh, I think I mean, we're, <laughs> we're seeing it, right. I mean, uh, um, even in America, like the, the, the diversity is, is creeping along here year after year, generation after generation. And, uh, maybe possibly in my lifetime, um, you know, um, Caucasian will be a minority in America for the first time in ever. Right. And, and, uh, you'll, you'll see that shift and, and that's just a natural progression of things. And, uh, um, I think that's part of why we're having so many cultural challenges right now is there's some resistance to that nat- naturally. And, uh, um, that challenge, that status quo is being challenged everywhere. And, um, I think, you know, maybe by the 22nd century, it will be a non-issue, right. And we won't have to use labels for the, you know, anybody, right. The LGBTQ community, the, uh, uh people of color of whatever color, uh, you are, uh, race, religion, et cetera. Um, it's certainly aspirational, right. I mean, I hate to admit that it's aspirational, but, uh, um, what we'll, we all collectively just keep at it. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I'll say really quick. Um, something that we all can identify here, we're all writers, is that I know I, I know Jim does. I know I do. I listen to music when I write. Mm-hmm. And so what did I do when I started writing the autobiography? I started listening to Star Trek music mm-hmm. and it didn't really feel right, which is really weird. I mean, I was listening to DJ Space and I was like, you know, it's just too much, which is too on the nose. Uh, and that's really weird because it's never happened to me before um, to not listen to Star Trek when writing something Star Trek. And I found myself, I actually moved, and this is this is God on this truth. And I went to um, the Wakanda soundtrack 
um, to the Black Panther soundtrack, sorry, Wakanda, to the Black Panther soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And I started to realize that it started to motivate me. And I felt like the works done in other pieces were, what I was doing was continuing a conversation. Yes, these are different IPs, yes. But the conversation, the idea, the hope, the thought is being a thorough line that is being passed through from Black Panther to Star Trek to um, The Expanse. You know, th- these are things that are being, th- these these ideas of, of people working together of all colors in the future. And I really had a really great time um, listening to the two Black Panther soundtracks while writing this book. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's it really fascinating. It really helped me. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating, Derek. I I know I, I knew that you were not I I'm uh let me rephrase. I knew that you were another writer that listens to music while you're writing, right? Whether it's um l- lyrical music or, or soundtracks or something. I know I, I, like a ton of us do that, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure, Maurice, if you do as well, but uh right. I've noticed um in within the last <laughs> within the last five or six years, I think I've gravitated away from soundtracks like you know you know scores you know orchestral scores and uh especially when i'm working on star trek because i i am so intently focused on making sure that our manuscripts are you know have that diverse feel i've been listening to a lot of world music a lot more world music now i've been listening to world music uh since uh uh, gosh must have been the early 80s um 1989 was a big year for me because that's when i was in college and my my mind was being open to the world, right? Because I came from a little teeny tiny high school in Rhode Island with like 100 people in the, in the graduating class. And I went to uh, George Mason here in Fairfax, Virginia, which had 20,000 students. So I went from I went from 100 students in my high school class to 20,000 at George Mason. And I was like, okay, this is a whole different world. And it was culture shock, right? Because I, I just didn't know. Um, but uh, uh, Peter Gabriel, started a uh, a record label in 1989 called Real World Records and he was intentional about making sure that that label introduced the world to musical artists from all over the world whether it was uh, you know Asia Pacific Africa Madagascar Europe South America, whatever music that, you know, your average, you know, dumb American, um, even though I was, uh, (laughs) even though I grew up, I mean, in this late seventies, early eighties, I was all about R and B and hip hop and, uh, and rap. Like I was in, I was in New York, uh, listening to run DMC and uh, grandmaster flash and uh, all that classic stuff, old school. um, And then, you know, continue on from there, but the world music really got me, got me hooked because it was so diverse and so incredibly complex and just like the Middle East is different from Africa and Madagascar is different from South Africa. And like, there's just so many cultures that are woven into that. So I just, I love listening to world music when I'm working on star, anything Star Trek lately, um, because it hits me differently than listening to the beautiful scores from the movies and the television shows. Nothing wrong with them because those composers are amazing, but, but right. they're not, they're, right. they're Star Trek. And I don't feel like they're like diverse, right? <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. There's a, there's a fine line there, I guess. But uh, so, uh, you know, Michael, uh, Maurice, do, do you both uh, write to music or do you need like silence? Or I, I'm just curious from a writer perspective. Yeah, I, I tend to, uh, I, I realize that uh, I, I do write to music a lot. Uh, a lot of my works, you, you can almost see the soundtrack of what I'm listening to woven into the actual fabric of the story, which is yeah. was pointed out to me after the fact. I was like, oh, dang, I, you could hand tell what I've been listening to. <laughs> um, 
here lately, the, I think my last couple of projects, since they've been so jazz influenced, I've gone back and and suddenly just started to discover some jazz artists who I, you know, I grew up and I missed all of that, frankly. And then so I'm here, I'm discovering like Charles Mingus and, you know. Oh, I was just about to say that. Right. <laughs> and all these cats, I'm just now discovering <laughs> them. And I'm uh, and my last couple of books were written to uh, classical jazz music. So. Yeah, I, I want to say uh, it, it depends on the scene. Um, I wrote a scene recently. I can't talk about it yet. It will premiere in March. But uh, I did listen to Vivaldi's score um, while writing it because I think it matched the characters. So I'll listen to some classical nice. music. But really, when I'm getting down and deep with sci-fi, I'm listening to Chikoria, Jean Lapointe, Pat Metheny soundtracks and some of their far out stuff because they're making my brain fire. And and I kind of know what there's a there's one album called To the Stars by Chikoria. It was written off of an L. Ron Hubbard book. Um, and mm. he it was purposely written to be yeah. sci-fi. So right. so yeah, I'm definitely inspired by music. Is that right? And I was gonna say uh, when I was writing Sweep of Stars, I was big into Kamasi Washington for that one. Okay. So yeah, Kamasi Washington just took me right to the stars. <laughs> Well, I have a question for y'all, too, because, you know, again, this time is flying by and we are, you know, we, we talk a lot about RPG on this on this podcast. <clears throat> and I've had this is real life story and I've been pleased with the outcome. So I've had players in my game appropriately, you know, ask like, hey, I actually want to play a person of color. Yeah. These are white men who are like, I want to play a person of color. How do you all feel about that? Me? I don't care because I love my favorite characters to play in RPGs, women. So, you know, <laughs> I never asked permission. I just went and did it. But um, and these are powerful women, by the way, too powerful, like run the ship kind of women. Um, but I thought that was an interesting question because I never thought that someone would be uncomfortable doing that. Again, I grew up with a very wide variety of people and and they played whatever they felt like that day, no matter what the um, ethnicity was. So let's approach that a little bit. <clears throat> Suppose we do have player groups that want to explore and forward the I idea of not only Afrofuturism, but Indo-futurism, Asian futurism, whatever they want to, some futurism in a game. What are some safety protocols and how do they do the research to get it right and not offend? Any, any advice you have? Because I encourage people to do it because we're role playing. That's the point, right? So um, what do you have to say about that? Wow, that's a that's a. I, I, okay, while Maurice is thinking, I'm a, I'm gonna take a stab at that one. Um, I'm gonna say because I I've I've been a player for a while. Um, you know that could be a that could be that's a, that's a tightrope right there because I every every group is different. Every group is different, and I can speak like for my group, that could be fine. You know, but my group was was um was uh a latin and 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 black and 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 you know predominantly men right um i think i think if you're going to role play a person of color and if the gm the dm or you know is going to allow that it you can't leave on any stereotype you know first of all you have to think about if you're going to allow that and and why why are you going to allow it? What is it about playing that person of color that is 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 beneficial for that game? Is beneficial? Why are you creating this character? Are you, are you exploring something that you don't you've never wanted you've never um done before? Um, why? Because that's a very that's a that's ooh, that's a tightrope, and I, I really I, I I really feel like um it 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 can't be rooted in any stereotype and 
and before that has to be um before before um that's undertaken uh if it's if there are no persons of color in the group then uh research has to be done um that's thoughtful um and meaningful um and what i mean by <laughs> research is not watch um boys in the hood <laughs> you know exactly um, you exactly to, <laughs> you know you have to really think about um why um you want to play a a a person of color what what is the motivation for wanting to play a person of color because there's just so many um stigmas and stereotypes around that and what does it mean for the uh, for the for the game um and for the for the campaign um, because that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's really tricky. Um, I'm trying to sum it up. It's like, yeah, I'm trying to say avoiding the Akuchimoya moments because we know we've always heard, you know, uh, uh, some controversy about what happened with Voyager and how they portrayed, you know, indigenous and it was all over the place. It didn't, it didn't single right, out, right. Hey, which, which tribe are you talking right. about here? But they conglomerated right. it all into one person. And, and so they're, and when you're watching it, you're like, okay, later on, you're like, ouch. And so how do we, you know, I want to make sure my players and my players are so conscious about it. They play a diverse set of characters and they really do avoid the ouches because we talk openly about it in our session zeros when designing these characters. Maurice, Jim? Curious to see uh, what uh, okay. You know, I was just thinking about my my gaming group. I would absolutely forbid that because yeah. my, my, my group of friends, it would be absolutely <laughs> offensive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, well, and then, so I'm just like, uh-uh, nah, y'all, y'all don't get to do that. Well, well, um, well, let's keep in mind, it's your gaming group. <laughs> right, so, you yeah, know. No, that's my gaming group. No, that's what I'm saying. Right. My gaming group, uh-uh, it's off the table. No, it's, um, and, and it's interesting, because I'm, I'm thinking through it, and it's like, I've had no problem, me personally, you know, I'll, I'll role play women and, and not blink twice. Um, but I've never played outside of my culture. So even like, even in the games, it's like when I'm playing Deadlands and I'm playing a cowboy, I'm, I'm still playing, playing a black cowboy. Uh, and I'm, I'm literally sitting here thinking through my, my, my past in, in, in game playing, you know, I'm playing another culture, you know, it's, I've always, I've, I've yeah. never, I've never. Yeah. Whenever I've done it, like playing, I, I played a, one of my, biggest characters of all time that every all my players love to hate because she was so powerful. It was an East Indian woman, mm -hmm. but it was based off a very strong East Indian woman I knew personally. And it, right. and I I would just emulate her and I and I even talk to her about it like hey what would you do you know and right. so it was very not where it's coming from me right. and I love the culture and, yeah. and 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 yeah and and I do know like for me personally part of it was uh because of the games that were written is like no uh, the games weren't written with me in mind, so I'm going to carve out my space in these games. And so that was always the the way I was coming at it. And I, I'm just, uh, but and then when I'm thinking about doing the other way, I'm just like, ooh, this is so fraught with <laughs> this going horribly, horribly wrong and like fairly no potential time. for disaster. I, I, yeah. So I, I'd have to. I, I would. I would think about that. But I would. I would still. I, I think asking those questions are actually valid. It's like, all right. So why do you want to do this? How do you want to do this? How you know? How, you know or and yet you, you write people of different ethnicities in your books, right? Both of you. Uh, I, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But see, that's that's a little different. And I think you know, there's a certain objectivity that all writers have to have, because I'm you know, and, and Maurice. We'll say, you know, we're not coming to any of those characters with any stereotypes. We shouldn't. 
you know, uh, unless we're creating a character and that particular character may have certain thoughts and views of the world, and that's something different. But when you're creating or writing a character, you know, you're just creating and writing characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but but no, that, that could be fraud. I mean, I, I've been in campaigns in college where people have played other characters of different colors or 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 genders just to be I well I'm not gonna curse here, but just to be rude, extremely rude. And then we had to kick those individuals out of the campaign. So it's really fraught with the potential for disaster because some people just want to, you know, want to see the watch the world burn or watch the campaign burn and want to throw dynamite into the campaign for no other reason than they want to see what will happen. And just being honest, you know, so you really have to, to really think this through. And, you know, if anything, I would say if anyone wants to do that, I would create at least 25 or 50 questions and think about, you know, why does this individual want to do that? What research have they done? You know, and make sure that it's going to be something that's going to be tasteful, respectful, and knowledgeable before even partaking something like that. Oh man, Sorry. I would love to see that. No, I would love to see that list of questions. I would. That should be a blog in it to itself. I love that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's you know. It's so it's know, so interesting. I think I, I agree <laughs> that it it is fraud, and then there is a fine line that you have to walk there. Um, but you know, to play at devil's advocate, right? Like, like if someone were to come into a Star Trek game and say, oh, you know, I want to play a Vulcan, you know, we don't, we don't scrutinize them with the same level, right? We don't say, okay, well, here's 25 or 30 questions to answer. Why do you want to play a Vulcan? Right. Why why is that? Why is that so important to you? Or you want to play a trill? Like why, why do you want to play a trill and not a human? Because you're human, like you're not a trill. And that's Um, that's kind of where I was thinking through is like, it's one thing where it's like, I'm, I'm going to play within this culture mm -hmm. versus I'm going to play within this race uh you know because because one smacks of you know literally blackface (laughs) is an appreciation of a culture Mm -hmm. and so i have no problem with someone playing within a culture yeah you know so yeah i I think we we're all victims of having seen abused for so long in media and done wrong that it is a touchy subject and um it's too bad in and the reason I'll say from my cultural background is because I'm exposed to so many different ethnicities um you know my wife she's chinese and black my her best friend's puerto rican and chinese my best friend is russian jew mixed with black and nicaragua great and literally um, I I love their cultures. We learn about them. We travel to each other's places, countries, homes of origin, and there's this exploration. Um, but understand that there was systems put in place to not even want us to explore that in a in a dignified way. So so I think I'm glad you all spoke on that because it's kind of like if you're not coming at it with dignity and with good intention, and you know the people around the table know that you are never going to do anything offensive. You know, right. we all oops and now. I mean, within our own subcultures, we oops and now. So, so, right. but you have pretty good friends who can forgive you. It, it's just something I, I would say uh, follow all the safety rules that Jim makes sure we all write about multiple times in all of our publications. Um, but, but people may want to do it. Again, I play in a very safe group where we honor every ethnicity and gender and stuff. So, um, but it is a thing to talk about, have a courageous conversation about, you know? Yeah. yeah. And whatever the opposite of that group is, that's the group I'd play with. So we would have <laughs> there are not enough guardrails in the world. We're uh-huh. like, this is just going to be a chamber of just us. No one. You, know. you sound like you play a lower decks game. <laughs> oh. Lower, lower, lower that's decks. Funny. 
or or and, and I should also just to add to what Jim said. Um, he's he's right. You know, in regards, like I want to play a Vulcan, and I'm not a person of color. But I want to play a Vulcan of color. I think that's cool. And the reason I think that's cool, thinking it through, is because there are certain guardrails already established in playing a Vulcan. You're not going to go really off the off the the ranch off the reservation, right? Because you're already playing a Vulcan or a Cleon or a Beta Z or, you know, there's already within the realm of, that's what's so cool about STA is that if you're going to play any of the species and you're going to play them um, a, a different different color to speak, then that's not really going to be an issue in STA, right? Because then you're playing more of the, the culture than the, you are playing the race, but these races are so hard cemented in their cultures. I think that you 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 wind up playing a lot of the culture as opposed to the yeah. That's race. funny because that no yeah no one assumes that there is a black Vulcan subculture because it's or Klingons of different colors right you know stuff like that. It's just interesting. Right, right. So huh. right. so it's it is interesting about that. We could yeah. yeah I think yeah, um, just point. to just to add to that, I think um, you know if if a group is having that session zero and talking about it and there's any uncertainty well you know we have close to a thousand hours of star trek that you can watch that shows you the example like this is how to do it you know uhura jordy wharf uh well maybe not Warf, but uhura jordy um you know ben cisco like they are they are starfleet officers First and foremost, they may happen to be people of color and they, maybe they're not people of color, but they are not like you were saying earlier, they are not judged on their color like that. That does not influence who they are um, specifically as it, what they're doing. Right. Um, so like they're just as capable as everybody else on the screen. You got you got you got Sulu and Yuhura and Kirk and Spock all on the bridge together, all doing their thing, super capable, all respectful of each other um you know getting getting the job done and if you can bring that philosophy to your game table then hopefully you know there won't be any issues and you know and that's just part of the fine art of um of developing your game group right you know you you, you connect with each other you 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 touch base you check in with each other are we on the right path are we are we, are we making some stumbles somewhere do we need to course correct do we need to dial in a bit and just you know, find that group that you mesh with. Maybe you're like like Maurice's group, where you're completely opposite of everything, and you're still having a great time together. Um, or, or you know, maybe you're on the same wavelength in a different respect. But that's the important thing: is like you all need to be on the same wavelength, and you don't have these rogue players coming in going, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna play this character just to screw with everybody and and uh, and be an ass about it." But because uh, those, those types of folks, you know, they tend to get not invited back, right? And then mm -hmm. you move on. So um, yeah, really fascinating. Good point. All right. I, I can't believe this time went by so fast. We got to have time for shameless self-promotion. So, so, so of course this, this we're taping this on November 15th and in six days, mm. Derek has mm. a book coming out and this, mm. this show premieres on December 1st, just so you know. So this is going to give us a chance to pump it up again, you know, uh, a week, about a week after. So Derek, shameless self-promotion, you go first. <laughs> The autobiography of Benjamin Lafayette Cisco uh, is a pleasure to write this. Um, it's going to be even more fun to see everyone um, hopefully read this and enjoy it. It's uh, coming out next Tuesday, um, November 21st. Uh, it, it, worldwide, everywhere um, books are sold. Um, you can pre-order now 
um, or go to your bookstore or call them and ask them to uh, to carry it. If, maybe if they're not and uh, enjoy it. And um, yeah, that's 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 basically it. You know, read it. Enjoy it. It's already blowing up. I know it's blowing up and it hasn't even, you know, it's been released in Europe in some places, but it it's hasn't been released. Been. Um, yeah. Titan books are uh, released at uh, Forbidden Planet. Mm. And um, um, thankfully, uh, people have read it and um, I've gotten some good reviews, thankfully, so far. So, you know, I've we'll, been we'll also see what everyone else thinks. Yeah. Well, we wish you a lot of success for that, for sure. A lot of success. And what Thank a privilege. You. All right, Maurice, now you have some news, too. Some shameless plugging to do. Right. <laughs> so uh, my current series out is uh, the Astro Black. Uh, book one is Sweep of Stars. That's that's out. And then uh, I believe later on next year, book two, Breath of Oblivion will be coming out. But before Breath of Oblivion comes out, I believe that comes out in the fall, in the spring, I will be having uh, my book T'Challa Declassified. <laughs> Uh, making this debut in April. So uh, really looking forward to uh, I, I've uh, yeah, and I've seen the galleys in this book is pretty. I ain't gonna lie. I'm just like, oh, I, oh, I, I did that. I did that. <laughs> um, but so yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, Child Declassified coming out. As you oh, can that's... see, uh, I may or may not be a Black Panther fan. <laughs> also, so. yeah, I was wow. I was super excited, Maurice. Um, my you know our, our good friends uh, Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore they wrote the uh, the Iron Man declassified book. Okay, um, and so that and that just came out like I think mm-hmm. I think it just came out mm-hmm. this week. It just came out this yep. week. Um, and I was flipping through yeah, it. I just got I mine too. I looked at the back and I was like, "Ooh, there's going to be a Black Panther book," and "Ooh, there's going to be a Captain." And I already knew Dayton and, and Kevin worked on the Captain America book too, but I saw the Black Panther one and I immediately hopped over to Amazon and uh, I saw that it was coming. You know, it's currently planned on coming out in April, and, and your name was on it. And I was like, "Oh, perfect storm!" Because we're having him on the show. On <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I am super excited. I, I pre-ordered it, of course. I had to because I'm a, I'm a Marvel stan, and. I'm super excited for it. So congratulations on that. Can't wait to see it. Maybe we'll get you back on the show again when it comes out so we can pl- pump you up even more. Well, you know, oh, I yeah. hate to have to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I have to say this is a special show. You know, I, I like being, I'm straight up transparent to the point of awkward, anyone who knows me. And being able to be on a panel, you know, with Maurice and Derek, you know, two African-American men here, you know, myself of mixed heritage and stuff like that. This is a dream, like to be able to, and, and heavy hitting, you know, characters that have guided and informed us as sci-fi and comic artists for so long. So my gratitude today goes to both of you. Again, you really changed how I think, which I love when people do that. I love when my brain goes, and I love it when it spasms in a panel. So I got to thank you both. I, I know now I spend a lot of time pumping up, pumping up your writings to, to my family members and stuff like that, making sure um, that we get these fresh new perspectives, not only in gaming, but throughout the literature, literary community. So thank you to you and other writers like you and young ones and new people trying to write more about it. They're very accessible. Maurice uh, type in his name, Maurice Brodus, Derek Tyler Attico. You'll be able to find their websites and uh, they're very active in social media. They, they're around when I look for them. So thank you both for that. Let's go do the rounds with Maurice, Derek, and then Jim will finish for gratitude. So for gratitude, I am always thankful to the Kepper Institute where I work and especially the group of artists at Cafe Creative because uh 
for me, I consider that applied Afrofuturism. It is we 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 co-create the future we want to see, the, the future we want to to create together, and we put it into action. Like once we cast that vision, it's like, hey, let's see what that looks like. Uh, starting to put that into place today. So uh, I really appreciate uh, the, the, the group of visionary neighbors that I work alongside. Um, I I would say uh, I know I, I would say I, I'm very appreciative to Titan. Um, books and to George Sanderson, the managing editor, and for a particular reason, though, because there are a lot of um, themes and ideas that I want to put in the autobiography, and um, they just let me fly, you know. Mm. And um, I'm really appreciative of that because um, at no time did they were like, "Oh, this is too much," or "That's you know, do this or that." It just let me fly and let me do what I what I wanted to do. And this is also my first novel. I've done a lot of short stories, but this is my first novel. And I think for them to put that trust in me um, for a first novel and just to be um, hands off is a, is a big deal. So I'm very appreciative of that. That's a way to come out of the gates ahead. <laughs> that's awesome for your first <laughs> novel, man. A dream. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Use it as a launching point for the next one. Very cool. Awesome. And uh, my gratitude, oh, yeah. um, I want to thank both of you for, you know, A, being on the show, but especially as writers, thank you for your stories. Thank mm -hmm. you for sharing your stories. Thank you for for bringing those vo the, your, your unique voices out into the open, into the public and uh, doing all that hard work. I know all writers do, but, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're both clearly, clearly killing it and uh, doing it day in and day out. So grateful to both of you for all the stories that you shared and all the stories to come. Uh, I can't wait to I can't wait to continue reading them. Um, also, gratitude to all the writers who've come before and and, and laid you know laid the foundation, laid the path, and, uh, and and showed us that you know especially science fiction can be more way more than just um, you know old old white guys. Right. And uh, there's just so much more diversity that's possible. And I'm just so grateful uh, that I grew up um, working in a bookstore and I was exposed to everything. I had the opportunity to, to shelve and read everything available to me. And I wasn't, you know, forced to look at a small selection of uh, of writing and, and authors. I, I got to read everything. And I'm super grateful for all the writers who've come before and the ones who are working at it now and the new writers that we don't even know of yet who are being inspired by you writing their stuff saying if Maurice and Derek can do this stuff I can do it and uh, and I can't wait to see what kind of new voices we have coming up in the future um, and then I'm also grateful to all the fans uh, Star Trek Adventures uh, fans are amazing day in and day out I see new fans coming into the game every day on all the different social media and all the different forums and stuff you are supportive of each other to an extent that Modifius can't keep up like I have like myself and Nathan and a couple other people like we're ready to answer questions about the game but by the time a fan answer a asks a question other fans are jumping on it answering it for them and I think that's just the that just shows you that we have a healthy game which I'm grateful for um, but it's all about the fans. We wouldn't be doing this for going on eight years now if we didn't have a great fan base, not just of Star Trek, but especially of the game itself. So thanks to all your fans. Keep it up. Uh, love you all. Appreciate it. Um, yeah. So, Michael, let's wrap it up here. I think it's a great yep. show. Thank you, guys. Oh, for sure. Next time I, we Thank have you. these gentlemen, next time we have these gentlemen on, I expect them both to be New York Times bestselling authors. <laughs> oh, don't put the pressure on them. They can't control that. <laughs> right. I, I have a feeling, though. I have a feeling. I'm hinging my bets. Yeah. All right. Until next time, today was definitely an IDIC show. Yeah. Live long and prosper. Be safe. Be well. We'll talk to you all again real soon. Thank you. Thank you.